0: Hey folks, join the band of history as we celebrate music on November 18th, 2023 at Toronto's iconic Massey Hall. Groove to Chess Fever's epic rendition of the last waltz and jam with our star-studded guest lineup. An unforgettable night ahead. Don't wait. Grab your ticket at bit.ly B-I-T slash Chess Fever Massey Hall. That's bit.ly slash Chess Fever Massey Hall. Hope to see you there. Levon Helm embarked on a determined mission, swiftly releasing his first studio effort, Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars, followed by a tour featuring his legendary lineup. However, the journey did not unfold as planned, encountering a rocky start with uneven reviews and the disappointment of canceled dates, leaving fans disheartened. In an interview with Rolling Stone Magazine's Tom Goldsmith, Helm candidly shared the challenges faced during the tour. Recounting moments of salvaging a few dates, including a memorable show drawing nearly 37,000 fans at the Superdome in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Yet the reviews were not favorable, and Helm attributed some of the difficulties to his own health struggles and the lack of sufficient rehearsal and sound checks. Seeking respite and rejuvenation, Helm retreated to Woodstock, New York, where he immersed himself in the creative sanctuary of his barn, adorned with studios and accommodations for nearly two dozen. Here, Helm dedicated himself to crafting new music, finding solace in the creative process that had always been central to his life. Additionally, Helm made journeys to Los Angeles driven by two essential purposes. Firstly, to spend quality time with his two children, Amy and Ezra, who had reached or were nearing double digits in age and lived with his estranged partner, Libby Titus. Secondly, Helm took the opportunity to collaborate with his management and label on the RCO All-Star record, a venture that faced challenges with weaker-than-anticipated album sales. Amidst these trials, Helm's manager, Ray Perrette, highlighted an education problem concerning the RCO All-Star's recognition among the public. Despite their extensive experience and expertise as studio musicians, their legacy, deeply rooted in the music industry, remained relatively unknown to many prompting the need for broader awareness and appreciation of their remarkable contributions. Thus, to prepare for another run of tour dates that would help embolden his image as a soloist and raise his group's profile, he wanted to organize another record to tour. Approaching this second album with a deliberate departure from convention, Levon orchestrated an ensemble of musical brilliance. He enthrusted the role of leader to Duck Dunn. Helm wanted to occupy a different position. He said of the power dynamic quote, Duck Dunn emerged as leader, without elections, and Tom Malone as co captain, handling horn arrangements. The recording process unfolded at two locations, each bearing a unique significance. Firstly, Cherokee Recording, a facility founded in 1972 in Los Angeles by members of the Robs. Focused on making the recording studio a creative space, Cherokee's new studio featured five live rooms. 24-track mixing consoles, 24-hour session times, and a lounge bar. It quickly became one of the city's busiest studios, attracting notable artists like David Bowie, Frank Sinatra, and Rod Stewart. The second locale was none other than the famed Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Founded in 1969 by a group of musicians known as the Swampers, the studio materialized from their prior stint as the house band for fame studios in Florence, Alabama. The studio's charm lay not in the beauty but its unassuming appearance, housed within a former casket factory. Decorated sparingly with a few posters and a shag carpet, the space exuded a sense of unpretentiousness, intimacy, fostering a relaxed and creative environment. Within these humble confines, musicians could focus wholly on their craft, and the studio swiftly garnered a reputation for its exceptional sound quality and powerhouse playing of the Swampers, attracting artists such as the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, and Bob Dylan during the early 70s. Guided by Helm's discerning vision, he assembled his band for the record, a quartet of formidable guitarists assembled. The esteemed Dan Ferguson, celebrated for his versatility, had collaborated with Stevie Wonder, David Bowie, and James Taylor. While Jimmy Johnson had etched his mark in the realms of blues and rock, lending his genius to legends like Howling Wolf, Otis Rush, and Buddy Guy. Larry Byram a seasoned veteran and member of Steffen Wolf brought his artistry to the fore, having established himself as a sought-after session musician in Muscle Shoals, and the legendary Steve Cropper, who had previously collaborated with Levon and the RCO All-Stars. This completed the six-string group. Bass duties were embraced by David Hood, whose tenure in Muscle Shoals' rhythm section included acclaimed artists such as Aretha Franklin, Wilton Pickett, and Netta James. Alongside him stood equally potent Scott Edwards, A prominent figure in funk and R&B circles, whose illustrious resume featured work with Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and the Supremes, earning his esteemed place among Motown's renowned house band, the Funk Brothers. While Helm's renown as a master drummer was undeniable, he made a surprising yet conscious decision to focus on his vocal performance during the recording process. As such, he entrusted the rhythmic heartbeat of the music to two remarkable drummers, Roger Hawkins of the Swampers fame, brought his storied expertise to the table, collaborating with Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, and Notice Redding, solidifying his reputation as a preeminent session drummer. Complimenting Hawkins was Willie Hall, whose journey with the renowned funk group The Bar Kays eventually led to his vital role in Isaac Hayes' band and Stax Records, where he lent his rhythmic brilliance to the staple singers and Albert King. The piano and keyboard were taken up by Barry Beckett. The highly influential keyboardist and founding member of Muscle Shoals' Rhythm Section, he contributed a number of classic recordings by artists like Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, and Paul Simon. Paired alongside him was Randy McCormick, whose contributions to country music were highly regarded. He worked with Alabama, George Strait, and Winona Judd. And last but certainly not least was the horn section. The same as his first solo effort, Helm employed Lou Marini, Alan Rubin, and Tom Malone who would later be the Blues Brothers. The trio had worked with the Rolling Stones, Duke Ellington, and Steely Dan, to name a few. And with this core, the group set, the record was ready to make. The inaugural track on the album graces us with the eloquent title, Ain't No Way to Forget You. Crafted by the talented pens of Carol Quillen and Grady Smith, esteemed writers in the realm of country music, acclaimed for their repertoire of chart-topping hits. The opening bars regal our senses with a resounding crescendo of majestic horns, the searing allure of an electric guitar, and a bombastic rhythm that swiftly surrenders to the embrace of Helm's incomparable vocals. The song truly showcases Helm's unique voice, adorned by an infectious melody that befits the role of an album opener. The lyrical tapestry woven with recounts of a poignant tale of a man entangled in the struggles of relinquishing a love of long past. Helm's delivery elicits pure emotion, imparting soulfulness, while the warm bluesy guitar and resonant piano strike a unique balance. A particular note in the chorus, a serenade wherein Helm tenderly invoices Ain't no way to forget you, baby, no matter how hard I try. The Sublime Bridge exercise a momentary decrease in instrumentation, elevating Helm's prowess even further. In its entirety, Ain't No Way to Forget You is an excellent model of Helm's artistic fusion, seamlessly weaving elements of rock, blues, and soul. Though mildly divergent from Helm's earlier work in tonality, the track ingeniously introduces a blend of edgier rock and blues nuances, setting the audience expectation for the rest of the album. Next, Driving at Night, which seamlessly sustains the unyielding intensity established by the previous song, Enthralling listeners with a magnetic allure, the track commences with a punchy, galloping bass line that drives with a searing lead guitar lick brimming with unapologetic sleaze. Helm assumes an undeniable swagger, commanding the track as he delivers the vocal performance, flawlessly synchronized with the bold horn section that amplifies the sonic experience to a new height. The song's genesis came from the mind of Daniel Moore, a prolific songwriter whose artistic journey was intricately woven with a tapestry of country rock luminaries from the 70s, including names such as Three Dog Night, Kenny Rogers, and Bonnie Raitt. Moore attuned to Helm's preference for a lively, punchy, and fervent rocker, and he tailored driving at night to embody the essence of Helm's preferred style, and this culminates in a symphony of vibrant, spirited brilliance. Within the lyrics, driving at night emerges as a nostalgic homage, a tribute to the unraveled freedom and exhilaration of embarking on nighttime highway escapades, where the wind whispers the promise of an adventure through open windows, and the radio serves as a jubilant companion, its melodies resonating in harmony with the throbbing pulse of adrenaline. And the chorus breathes life into the very essence of this American pastime, weaving verses that immortalize the euphoria of such journeys. Driving at night, feeling good, feeling right, like I knew I would. Overall, it's the perfect ode to the cherished tradition of cruising and drag racing. Experiences that Helm himself doubtlessly savored. Overall, it's a composition of compromising charm, beckoning the listener to immerse themselves fully. Play Something Sweet emerges as an exquisite gem in Helm's musical treasury, a masterfully crafted composition penned by his esteemed friend Alan Toussaint. In this soulful and bluesy tribute, Helm's artistry beckons memories of his illustrious days with the band, where music was the elixir that elevated spirits and touched the very core of our souls. Initially gaining prominence in 1974, the song achieved acclaim when Three Dog Night brought it to Soaring Heights on the Billboard charts. In Helm's unique style, every note he utters becomes an emotive punch, as his unparalleled vocal virtuosity envelops the listener. His high vocal registry here unveils a brilliance that is no short of extraordinary, and the chorus and the harmonies that intertwine create a soulful and funky harmony. The whole symphony of instrumentation that envelops Helm is a testament to the remarkable talent he chose to surround himself with. A bright and spirited horn section dances joyfully along with the velvety textures of the funk guitar riff, culminating in a lush and harmonious soundscape that perfectly cradles Helm's soulful vocals. The solo section unfolds as the wondrous symphony of intertwining melodies. In this splendid and spirited rendition, Helm once again proves that he can breathe new life into a cherished classic, infusing it with his own essence and leaving an indelible mark. Play Something Sweet is a testament to the magic that transpires when exceptional musicians converge. Sweet Joanna, originally composed by Joanna Hall and John Hall of the renowned group Orleans, finds new life in Levon Helm's skilled hands as he infused the track with his own distinctive flair and signature touch of vibrant horns. The lyrical narrative unfolds as a tale of a man embarking on a transformative journey to the bustling metropolis of New York for the first time, stepping into adulthood's embrace. Yet amidst the glory, he pens a heartfelt letter back to Joanna, conveying that the city may not be the ideal haven for her, undoubtedly drawing from his own experience with Joanna. In Helm's rendition, the guitar heavy original undergoes a marvelous metamorphosis, replaced by a dynamic horn arrangement. A groovy melody and a driving bass take center stage, with the electric guitar assuming a supportive role. Helm masterfully builds the chorus, infusing it with impact and resonance, elevating the song and giving it a soul stirring expression. Though, through his musical alchemy, Helm breathes fresh life into Sweet Joanna, though it's much of the same on an album with moments that fill the same feeling to much better effect. Although one might anticipate a funky and vibrant musical extravaganza, I came here to party to takes a different artistic route, diverging from the signature Levon Helm style. Penned by revered swamp rock legend Tony Joe White, the track was specially entrusted to Helm for recording. A mid-tempo rocker, the song weaves a narrative of an individual seeking to perpetuate the euphoria of life's revelry, unwilling to yield to the passage of time. However, beneath the surface, the realization dawns that without the intoxicating allure of a buzz and the love of a woman, the path ahead might hold little to cherish. Though the lyrical themes are relatively standard, reminiscent of a country ballad that you might find John Anderson or even George Jones singing with bold orchestration and biting pedal steel, you see none of that here. Surprisingly, the song ventures into uncharted territory, presenting an overdriven guitar and pedestrian bass. As Levon drawls out the lyrics with a tinge of boredom in his voice, one might sense a lack of genuine enthusiasm. Even as the horns valiantly build to a crescendo in the song's second half, alas, the momentum is too late to salvage the track, as its overall arrangement comes to a flaccid end, leaving us rather uninspired. Throughout the song's duration, there appears to be a lack of cohesion, any progression, an absence of any climatic moment that elevates the composition to greatness. Overall the track lacks the invigorating spirit that Helm typically offers. In essence, I Came Here to Party is a disappointing divergence from the expected on Helm musical charisma that we come to expect. The song, Take Me to the River, holds its rightful place as a timeless classic. Initially crafted by the brilliant Al Green and Teeny Hodges, the pair wrote it in 1974, and as critic Tim Delisle stated on the number, quote, a light, easy late-night sound in which the strings, the horns, the organ, the guitars, and that wild honey voice blends into a single swinging, winning thing. It doesn't sound like a band playing. It sounds like a lot of instruments humming. When Levon Helms had his sights on including it in his latest album, he breathed new life into the song, delivering a soulful and bluesy rendition that bore the unmistakable stamp of Helms' distinctive voice, infusing it with a flavor uniquely his own. Among the notable differences that set Helm's version apart lies in the addition of stirring dynamics of the horns, altering it and lending it a fuller, more dynamic sound. As the horns intertwine with Helm's emotive voice, it oozes pure groove. And in his band's capable hands, Take Me to the River transforms, assuming a driving beat that infuses the song with an irresistible rock and roll feel, a departure from the original slow-burning soul ballad Nature. The song's transformation is further embellished by the impeccable drumming and funky bass guitar. film's high register soul-stirring interpretation kindles something unique as the song reaches its crescendo, and his rendition is a testament to his knack for reinterpretation. He truly breathes his own essence into it. Now, Helm brought his friends Ernie and Earl Kate of Arkansas origin into the studio to assist with backing vocals on tracks on the album. And the brothers provided their composition, Standing on a Mountaintop. The Kates had a long history with Helm, and upon coming to Los Angeles, Helm hooked them up with David Geffen's Asylum Records in 1975, where they had some minor charting success. With Standing on a Mountaintop, from the very first note, the groovy-infused rock number, characteristic of the Kate brothers, graces the soundscape. A tantalizing blend of melody and rhythm beckons the listener into a musical daze. Anchored by a mesmerizing bass line, its melodic allure intertwines with the busy yet rhythmic percussion and phased funk guitar. The instrumental arrangement forms a unique and captivating bedrock, a foundation in which Helm lays down his vocals. horns also emerge as a seamless accompaniment, imbuing the track with a sense of summery sophistication and an air of effortless grace. His typical approach to vocals offer a sense of something familiar and comfort, a familiar embrace that warmly envelops the audience. Lyrics may not attain the same heights of poetic brilliance as one might hope. Their simplicity perhaps lacks profound depth. Though simplicity in lyrics can sometimes be harnessed to stunning effect, in this instance, the composition leaves a little yearning for greater substance, a desire for more profound narrative intricacy. Nonetheless, the true heart of the composition unfurls in the instrumental jam. In the captivating realm of let's do it in slow motion, Helm and his adept ensemble sought to conjure an intoxicating atmosphere, a web of sensuality that would envelop the audience in its enthralling embrace. Penned by the esteemed blues singer, songwriter, and pianist Benjamin Lattimore, the track resonates with pure R&B essence, a testament to Lattimore's poetic finesse and musical prowess. It was hailed by renowned music critic Robert Christal. Quote, he just puts those lyrics across, intelligent and matter-of-fact if you've never heard them before. Such simplicity, intertwined within the song's inherent magnetic charm, held a particular allure for Helm, beckoning him to delve into the nuances of the composition to infuse it with his own unique essence. Once again, horns took center stage, with Marini, Malone, and Reuben unleashing their brassy virtuosity, conjuring melodies that danced effortlessly upon the ear as the verses simmered with anticipation. David Hood's bass guitar added a pulsating low-end heartbeat, a steady rhythm that served as the song's foundation. Amid the intoxicating orchestration, Helm's vocal emerged like a beacon, his voice shimmering with a captivating warmth, as he uttered, Ain't it good when you let it flow, babe? Sweet vibrations fill your soul. Each syllable he crafted seemed to caress the senses, painting a vivid picture of the song's narrative immersing the listener in a world of blissful connection and tantalizing desire. Chorus, a crown jewel, enveloped the listener in a captivating pocket of laid-back charisma. Its unhurried pace truly enthralls the senses even further, drawing the audience closer to Helm's magnetic spell. With poetic finesse, he croons the words, I like to do it in slow motion. Let's do it in slow, slow motion. The very cadence of his voice, reflecting the song's sensual essence, In a delightful departure from earlier work of Helm and his time with the band, Let's Do It in Slow Motion showcased a bold and fearless leap in creativity. A rare gem in his discography, the song allowed Helm and his ensemble to explore uncharted musical avenues, weaving a jam and using textured effects on his vocals. artistic risk lay the true beauty of the song, a testament to Helm's commitment to this album, venturing beyond his comfort zone and crafting something uniquely remarkable. In the album's final track, Audience of Pain, emerged as a poignant creation authored by esteemed duo Jerry Goffin and Barry Goldberg, thoughtfully tailored to complement Helm's country-fried rockers. Goffin, renowned for his influential lyricism and fruitful collaborations with Carole King, and later writing Breaking New Ground with Richard Emanuel, was paired with Goldberg, a key figure in the blues and rock music scenes of the 60s to unite their talents to craft a ballad that seamlessly intertwined rock, blues, and country elements, harmonizing perfectly with Helm's persona. The song's lyrical brilliance lies in its simplicity and emotive power, narrating a tale of a man who bears the burden of suffering and the heartache of knowing that his loved one should not endure the weight of his depression. The poignant themes resonate vividly in the lines. But if we spend the night together, well, I know you can't remain. And darling, you're too good to be. Just an audience for my pain. Helm's vocal performance, reminiscent of a George Jones country hit, exudes an understated yet devastating emotion where subtlety reigns supreme drawing the listener into a profound experience of raw vulnerability the instrumental accompaniment further embellishes the song's narrative commencing with a hauntingly beautiful piano riff anchoring the composition with a delicate yet potent blend of bass snare and guitar As the song unfolds, its emotional crescendo steadily rises, with each word intensifying the emotional gravity. Horns soar with a newfound boldness, complementing the background vocals and highlighting every phrase. The musical build culminates in a soulful wail of guitar speaking speaking with a voice as a motive as Helm's own. Audience of Pain is a magnum opus on the album, giving the audience a rare glimpse into Helm's sensitive soul. The delicate interplay of the heartfelt lyrics and the masterful musicianship elevates the track to the album's zenith. As the album draws to close, audience of pain leaves a lasting impact, a tender and emotive farewell that bestows a poignant resonance upon the overall listening experience of a rather uneven album. Following the album's completion, ABC Records sought to place Helm in the spotlight this time. In a departure from his first album's cover, the artwork for this record was meticulously crafted, art directed by Stuart Kusher and captured through the lens of Gene Brownell. The cover showcased a striking portrait of Helm dunning a humble blue baseball cap while clutching two drumsticks, bearing the simple yet powerful title, Leave on Helm. This artistic direction signified a strategic move by the label. Aiming to establish Helm as a poignant and enduring presence in the music industry, the decision to name the album solely after Helm underscores the label's intent to forge a lasting and recognizable identity. The record was released in 1978, and he quickly returned to the road. Helm embarked on a spirited journey, mirroring the band's iconic Rock of Ages live show and eventual album, recorded on New Year's Eve, at the renowned Academy of Music in New York City. In a fascinating twist of fate, Helm once again graced the same venue on New Year's Eve in 1977, this time with his newly formed ensemble, The RCO All-Stars, for an exuberant performance that would later be immortalized in a captivating live album. Having undergone a re-imaging in 1978, the Academy of Music had been rechristened the Palladium, emerging as a coveted hotspot in the 70s. Capable of hosting approximately 4,000 enthusiastic souls, the venue garnered prestige for its storied history and exceptional acoustics, attracting stadium bands that eagerly planned tour stops at this hallowed establishment. With the all-stars assembled, Helm orchestrated a spirited and romping show, unleashing their musical prowess in a tour de force that would leave a lasting impression. But the train had just left the station, and Helm and co. were back on the road. During this period were performances alongside music luminaries. He shared a bill with Neil Young, fresh from the release of his eighth studio album, American Stars and Bars, at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Another encounter featured Helm joining forces with Jerry Garcia, the legendary figure of the Grateful Dead fame, as Garcia embarked on a tour with his infamous band. Together, they graced the revered spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, delivering a spellbinding evening of musical brilliance. However, the trajectory of Helm's tour encountered hurdles as two shows were unceremoniously canceled in Canada. This unfortunate turn of events left fans at the Ontario Place Forum in Toronto disheartened and perplexed, prompting speculation over Helm and the RCO All-Stars disbandment. Good old rompin' Ronnie Hawkins stepped in as a late last minute replacement, and Helm even attempted to join Hawkins for the show, but was denied entry at the border leaving many fans disappointed. Subsequently, the scheduled show in Montreal met the same fate, adding to the frustration of a promising tour. And with dates left unfulfilled, Helm and his reconfigured group embarked on a 6 day journey to Japan before returning stateside, where they regrettably compelled to cancel yet another performance, this time at the revered Austin City Limits in Texas. Amidst the exasperations of touring and the elusive breakthrough of success that he envisioned, Helm recognized the need for a regroup, a slowdown, a chance to chart a new course. The grand all-star band, while brimming with talent, encountered challenges of clashing egos and conflicting schedules, jeopardizing the unity that Helm sought to build in pursuit of his independent path away from previous associations with the band. In this transition era, would Helm's unwavering determination guide him through the trials, steering him towards a renewed sense of purpose, to further solidify his legacy as a remarkable artist and a captivating storyteller? Only time would tell. Thank you for listening to the Bandit History. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It's been one that I've been stuck on for a little bit. Um, I think I've put out two episodes since I actually started writing this one. Um, I was getting some good pace on it at the beginning, and then it kind of stumped me. Uh, I came in not loving this album a whole lot. And I just thought it was kind of like a downstep from his first solo effort. And I still think it is in a lot of ways. But um, after finishing the Carney episode and doing some other things, I had to revisit it because I was like, I need to get this episode done. I need to get it out. And uh, like a maniac, I just played it on repeat over and over. I would oftentimes just go song by song, playing it on loop and writing what I felt as I heard it. There's so not a lot of like information out there about what critics thought of it and stuff. I had a hard time digging any of that up, so it was really kind of up to me to try to put on my critic hat uh, and, and write about the music. And I don't know if it's some weird syndrome of listening to it over and over, but I actually started to enjoy quite a bit of the songs, uh, especially the last two songs. And in, in, in the beginning of the album's good, too. It kind of reaches a bit of a lull for me in the middle. But uh, nonetheless, interesting period. Definitely challenging for Levon, and you're seeing that narrative intertwined with almost all the band members. Whether it's Robbie and his escapades in Hollywood, or Garth and his house burning down, or Richard trying to get sober for the real first time in his life, or or Rick, you know, getting his first solo album out, and then same kind of thing happening on tour where he's really not getting what he wants. Uh, so it was very interesting. But uh, I digress. Um, If you like the episode and you like the show, consider following us online. We're everywhere. We're on Twitter, which is now X. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram and Threads, TikTok and everything at The Band Podcast. Um, Come over there. Say hi. Uh, There's always a lot of cool stuff happening on those platforms. Uh, If you're considering supporting the show... Um, and you want to give back or want to give support, consider becoming a Patreon. Uh, actually, I think it's p- Patron. On Patreon. Patreon.com slash history. There's different tiers. Donate money. Uh, we have a couple cool things going on right now. You get early access. Exclusive content. We're doing a book club all about the band right now. And the first book was just selected. So... You know, sign up to Patreon, come join our book club. We're a bunch of nerds over there. And uh, as always, I want to thank the patrons for all of their support and helping keep the show going. Paying for some of the nominal stuff that needs to be paid for on a podcast. Um, and off the top, you heard the announcement about the Massey Hall show with Chess Fever. I just want to give that a plug again. I have the distinct honor of being friends with these guys and helping them put on the show. So I've got stakes in it too. So if you're in town, uh, Toronto that is, November 18th, for a Last Waltz celebration, please consider coming. There's going to be lots of cool guests. Lots of guests that have tie-ins with the band. And uh, it'll be a fun night. And even if you're not from Canada, and if you're living up in one of those northern states along the Canadian border there, consider coming up. I come down all the time to upstate New York. It's fun. You guys would have a great time up in the good old Toronto area. So uh, there's a link to tickets in the description of this episode. As always, I want to thank my editor, Mike, for making me sound good. You don't know how many flubs and weird things and sounds that I make. And Mike cleans all that up. So thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of the Band of History. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you on the next one.